Welcome to the All People's Church podcast. We believe in loving God, strengthening families, and developing leaders. We are so excited for you to hear this life-changing message recorded live at one of our worship experiences. Remember to share and subscribe to this podcast and enjoy the message. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to finish Matthew chapter 13 tonight. And uh, yeah, come on. That's, uh, <laughs> that's good news. And I think... I think, uh, yeah, we are, we are on our way. Amen? We are on our way. And so I guess once we finish Matthew 13, we'll, we're going to officially be halfway done, all right? Because there's 28 chapters, and so we're, we're going to be officially, <laughs> we're going to be officially halfway done. Um, Matthew 13, can you remind me, um, has been the chapter of what? Parables. Matthew 13 has been the chapter of parables, and Jesus continues to teach his disciples regarding what subject? The kingdom, yes. And so Jesus continues to say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, remember, this chapter follows two chapters of of Matthew depicting different kinds of responses to Jesus, right? So there's all these different responses to Jesus. Remember, even before that, I think it's Matthew chapter 10, where, where John sends his disciples, and he wants to know, are you really the one? Because I'm in prison, and are you really the one? Aren't you supposed to be doing, uh, you know, aren't you supposed to be turning over the nation and getting it back from Rome? Are you really the one? And then Jesus says, well, go back to John and tell him what you see, that the blind see and the lame uh, can, uh, can speak, and, 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 and those who were not able to walk are walking. And so, and so even after that, you have, you have the, the, the Pharisees who, who see the works of Jesus, and yet they say, well, surely you're doing this by demonic influence. You're doing this by the spirit of Satan. And Jesus says, well, why would Satan work against himself? If he works against himself, his kingdom is gonna fall. And so what are you, what are you talking about? And then yet there are those who are, able to see who Jesus is, and they come to him, and they say, Jesus, you can surely heal us. Won't you, won't you heal us? And so you have all these people who, who respond to Jesus the way we should respond to Jesus, and yet at the same time, you have these other people who, who can see the works of Jesus but not, are not responding. And so the whole point is Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God, and so Matthew chapter 13 follows all those things. And that's important for us to see why is Jesus in the midst of all these responses fixated on explaining the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom to his disciples. Now that's an important concept for us to understand and it's gonna be part of tonight's teaching even uh, as we go through our text is Jesus is fixated on his disciples gaining clarity, not necessarily the crowd, right? And so they say to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he says, well, I speak to them in parables so that seeing they may not see. That hearing they may not hear. And, and yet he sits them down and says, but let me explain to you this parable because blessed are your eyes for they see and blessed are your ears for they hear. Now, that's not because the disciples were born with spiritual enlightenment. That's because spiritual sight and spiritual hearing has been gifted to them by Jesus. It's a gift. It's a gift. And so for us today, 2,000 years later, it's still a gift that the Holy Spirit gives us because he's our teacher. He is the one that Jesus says will lead us and guide us into all truth. And so he gives us the ability to see and he gives us the ability to hear. And so we have to lean into the gift that is readily available to us. Otherwise, we will subject ourselves to be one of the people in the crowd who though we hear, don't hear. And though we see, we don't see. Remember that? And so, and so that's incredibly important. And so Jesus is gonna turn to his disciples even tonight as we go through the text. 
And he's going to offer them clarity. He's going to offer them clarity. And it's fascinating that he does not offer it to the crowd. So let's stand tonight as we read out of Matthew chapter 13. We're gonna read from verse 47 to verse 58. I'm reading out of the ESV translation. In case you have it on your phone, you can turn on the same translation there. It says this, starting at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. You catch that? Not just particular fish, every kind of fish. When it was full, someone say when. Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. It sounds like another parable that Jesus gave to his disciples. Remember the wheat and the weeds? So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So now they're not just good or bad. It's, he's, he's, he's given another qualification, evil and righteous. Verse 50, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. Verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you have gifted us the ability to see and the ability to hear. Let the Holy Spirit be our teacher tonight. Allow us to lean into what you have to say to us. Expand us, God, and shape us in the ways you want to. Allow our minds to be sharpened. Even tonight, allow our hearts, Lord, to expand and let the truth of your word wash over us. Help us, to be the, help us to be students of your word tonight. Help us to think and to ask questions. And, and Lord, to understand that your word has stood the test of time. Lord, allow your word to shape us tonight. I pray for every distraction and any hindrance to those who are in this room and those who are watching online and I just ask, Lord, that you would allow there just to be a separation between anything that might distract us and hinder us from hearing you plainly and clearly tonight, and that you would allow us, Lord, to be present. Allow us to be present. We give you honor, we give you glory, in Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't said hi to anyone around you, go ahead and, and welcome them tonight. And if you're watching online, comment. I love your comments and you using the chat section is, is just incredible. If we can get the house lights on just like a smidge. They are bright because they're new, but so just warning. Um, all right, so tonight, the title of our time together is Authentic Discipleship. Authentic Discipleship. Authentic Discipleship. Can you say that with me? Authentic Discipleship. How many know that God is not just looking 
um, for people to be behind him, but he's looking for people to be with him. Because many crowds followed behind Jesus. Many crowds, even when Jesus crossed over the lake, many crowds met him on the other side. And yet, those crowds weren't necessarily with him. It was his disciples that were with him. And so it's incredibly important that we ask ourselves the question, hey, am I part of the crowd or am I a disciple? Am I part of the crowd that'll just show up because I know Jesus does good things, right? Remember, Jesus had this, this moment even with the crowd where he says, listen, you're just here because you know I can feed you. But, but I'm telling you, what really matters is if you eat of my flesh and if you drink of my blood, and it wasn't Jesus telling them to, you know, to be cannibals. That's not, that wasn't the point. The point is you, you, you have to abide in me and I have to abide in you and, and we have to be one. You have to be my disciple. Remember I taught you when, one rabbi when asked what, it does, what does it mean to follow Jesus, he answered it means to wear his dust. It means to wear his dust. It means that you would walk in, in such proximity behind Jesus in that day and age. Remember, it's not like today where we have pavement and asphalt. It, it is dirt roads. And so you would literally be walking in the dust cloud Jesus leaves behind. And so you would wear his dust. And so that's the point. The point is that we do not become crowds. And so moments like this, moments like Wednesday night and, and Bible study, allow us to slow down so that we can ask those questions about ourselves. Slow down, just look at the word of God and say, and say well, how does, how does a disciple of Jesus actually behave? And what are the expectations Jesus has for his disciples? It's interesting to know that Jesus has expectations. I know we want to follow a Jesus with no expectations. I know it's easier to follow a Jesus who does not have expectations. But the reality is, Jesus has expectations. He expects his disciples to behave and live in a certain way. That's why earlier Christians were not called Christians. They were called people of the way. What way? the way of Jesus, that they could see the ways of Jesus in these people, and so they were known as the people of the way. They emulated, they, they looked like, they, they took on the nature and the character of Jesus, and so that was the beauty. So just as Jesus was the exact imprint of the Father, so the early Christians were imprints of Jesus. They were called little Christs, people of the way. And so it's incredibly important that we remember that there are expectations. Now, now you say, you say, well, is it fair for God to have expectations? Is it fair for a God who sent himself in human form and, and, and subjected himself to, you know, probably the only comparison that we could probably accurately make is as if we, one of us were, were to turn into an ant and, and visit a, a, an ant colony and say, hey, listen, I'm gonna die for you little ants. And so we know that God subjected himself to the poverty of humanity. He left his riches and subjected himself to the poverty of humanity, came in the humble form of a baby and subjected himself to a, a human rejection and, and violence and crude, crude torture. And so we asked the question, well, how can, how can God have expectations? Well, I don't know, how can a God who gave himself for you have expectations? Crazy, right? And so this is the beauty about relationships. Any relationship has expectations. In fact, I would say any relationship without expectations bears no fruit. And so expectations are important. Expectations need to be communicated. And what an incredible God that we have that he clearly and plainly communicates his expectations. He actually wrote a book and said, let me lay it out for you. 
Let me teach you with clarity so that you understand that what I'm looking for is not just people to fill a room. What I'm looking for are people who would allow me to fill their hearts. I'm looking for authentic discipleship. I'm looking for those who would be genuinely concerned to now have their life revolved around me rather than have me be, be the peripheral and them at the center. Case in point, I'm sure there have been moments where you have invited God into your plans before you have ever asked if your plans were his. Hello? And so sometimes we think that's, you know, and either we've been pitched Christianity that way, and, and so then we are guilty of pitching Christianity to others in that way. And so we say things like, man, I'm sure you've got a great life. I'm sure you've got it all planned out. But wouldn't it just be great if you added a little bit of God on top of that? Rather than to communicate what the Bible communicates, and that is that the reality is we are completely unfulfilled, unsatisfied, separated from the God who has created us, the God, by, uh, by the God with whom we were created to have a relationship, and outside of him, we are completely unsatisfied and our souls are thirsty. And so it doesn't matter how full your life is with things and material uh, uh, possessions and, and, and wealth and you have riches and you have everything you could possibly desire. At the end of the day, when you lie at in your bed at night, you know your soul is unsatisfied. And so Jesus did not come to solve every human problem there exists on earth. He came to solve the human problem, the human dilemma. And that is that sin has robbed us of a relationship with our God. And so we are guilty of saying things like, man, if you just come to God, whatever plan you have for your life, just ask him to bless that. And so we come to God and we go, okay, God, I'm gonna give you my life, but here's what I want you to do. See, all these plans I have for my life, and by the way, my plans actually have deadlines, and so and don't let me go beyond this particular age until this thing actually happens in my life. And so, if God, if you could just do that, man, that would be awesome. Right? And yet the Bible tells us that it is not humanity that is sovereign, it is God who is sovereign, it is God who is in control. And so he sits on the throne, and so even though we might have plans, it is him who directs our steps. And when you begin to lean into authentic discipleship, those moments of God directing your steps, God introducing his will into your life, his plans and his purposes into your life, those become the moments you cherish the most. As we're gonna find out by the end of tonight that it is actually, it is actually a curse that sin plagues onto humanity that allows humanity to actually have its ways. That is, that is a curse that comes with sin. And God frees us from that curse by introducing us to his will, his ways, and his plans. And so God's will actually breaks the curse of the plans of sin and death over your life. Right? One of the worst things God could do is answer some of your prayers. And, I, and I've sat with some of you. I know some of you. I don't want God answering your prayers or certain prayers. Because, because and, and by the way, I include myself in that. Because we have an incredible tendency to be selfish. And so we ought to thank God for the prayers he did not answer. We, we ought to thank God for those moments where he did not allow us to have our way, but caused us to, to, to submit to his ways. All right, we should probably get to verse 47. Otherwise, I'm gonna keep talking and not, not get through chapter 13. And I can't say we're halfway through if, I, if we don't get through chapter 13. So, Jesus is introducing here another parable, another explanation, and what Jesus does here is, is very fascinating in the last, second last parable that he kind of gives us here in verse 47 of chapter 13. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does the word kingdom mean? Can you remind me? 
right? It is, it is a combination of two words, the king's domain. And we know biblically in the New Testament, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, refers to the rule and reign of God. The kingdom is not necessarily a place. It is not necessarily a realm. It is God's rule and reign coming to earth, right? And the whole point of Jesus teaching these parables is so that there would be a radical shift in the way you are living, right? So that this actually changes you when you leave. I know, crazy thought. But the whole point of the teachings of Jesus is not so that we can go, man, that was a good teaching, Pastor Mo. We love your Wednesday nights, great. No, no, no. The whole point is the Holy Spirit begins to impress on your heart the, all the ways in which he wants to mold you and shape you and introduce more of his rule and more of his reign into your life. And the whole point about the word of God is when you look at it, you don't go, oh, I've read this before, so let me just turn to a new chapter or a new book that I haven't really read before. No, the whole point is what ways do I still need to allow the kingdom of God to operate in my life that maybe I'm blind blinded from. And so it's this continuous invitation for the Lord to operate and work in your life. One of the things that, you know, growing up, especially when I was in Bible college and, 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 you're, and you're, you're getting ready to, to, to go into ministry and so you have all this all this zeal, you have all this passion, and, and I begin to, I began to fell, fall into this trap of, of man, when I go to church, I wanna hear something new. Don't, don't sing the old, same old songs, don't, don't preach you know, the same sermons, I, I wanna hear something new. And so I'd go into different church services, and so you know, in Bible college, we were always trying to figure out, okay, what church do we go to, because this was a new area, I, I lived there, I, so I lived on residence, so I wasn't in Brampton, so I wasn't coming to APC, I would come on particular weekends and during the summer when I was off of school, but we'd, we'd try to figure out, okay, what church do we go to, what church do we go to, and, and one of the traps, one of the traps was we'd go to a certain place, or it would be a particular Sunday, we'd go to church, and we'd go, oh yeah, I've heard a message on this scripture already. And so you, you even unintentionally begin to zone out. And you begin to think of, oh, you know, all the things you gotta do when you go home and, and the grocery list and, and the to-do list and, oh, that needs to be, I gotta do my laundry and, oh, I gotta reach out to this person. I wonder what they're doing. I wonder what their plans are for the weekend. And, and, and that's what you do. And you are missing the opportunity for God to actually get a hold of you and shape you. And so this was the beauty about, this was the beauty of the Old Testament, right? This is why, this is why they were commanded to, to meditate on the word, meditate on the law day and night, day and night, day and night. Keep my words on your mouth, day and night. Meditate on my law, day and night, day and night. What was the point? What was the purpose? Why do you have to do it day, or, day and night? Because you're never going to get to the end. You're never going to look at a scripture and go, yeah, I've done, I've done that. I'm good, I'm good, teach me something new. And that's part of our problem. Part of our problem, even in the generation we're living in, is it's all about the new. It's all about the new. It's all about the new. Well, what's new? What's new? Can we sing some new songs? Can you teach some new messages? And what we don't allow ourselves to do is to submit under the word of God and say, no God, your word is everlasting. The flower fades, the grass withers, but your word, it doesn't. And so every time God's word is proclaimed and preached, by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. And so be weary and cautious of preachers who are fixated on teaching you something new. You know what preaching is? Preaching is saying the same thing over and over again. That's my job, literally to say the same thing over and over and over again. It's, it's not to come up here and say, oh, I have something new to teach you. If, if I ever do that, run. Because the, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And so, and so we might, I might say something a different way, but I'm saying the same thing. So the kingdom of heaven is like a net 
that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of what? Every kind. Now this, this, this net right here, the, the Greek word literally is, is a drag net. And so a drag net was a massive net that would actually require, there's two ways to do it. You would have either two boats and particular, you know, certain people on the boat were, were in charge of, of bringing the boat back to shore while others held the net. And so it would be a net held between and tugged and created tension between two boats and, and they would drag that to shore. Or it would be two teams of men who would go as, as, as deep as the water allowed them to go so that they can still walk and they would stretch that net and they would drag it back to shore. And the purpose was not to catch, you know, this kind of fish. The purpose was let's just catch everything we possibly can. And we'll figure, out, we'll figure it out afterwards. When we get back to shore, we'll figure out what we want to keep and what we don't want to keep. But let's, the assignment is let's just catch everything we possibly can. And so they would, they would, they would, they would walk in as deep as they possibly could. And, and, and then they would begin to drag the net back to shore, catching every fish they possibly could catch, big, small, ugly, beautiful, whatever. That was the goal. That was the purpose. And so Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's like a dragnet that's thrown into the sea and gathers every kind of fish. And when it's full, when it's full, someone say when. So as soon as it says when, you know that there, there, is, a, there is a timing issue. It's not, it's not the present. So the, the present assignment, catch every fish. Catch everything we possibly can catch. The future assignment is what? To then begin to separate it, sort it out, the good into containers, but throwing away, notice the bad. This is, by the way, this parable is so like the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Right? The current assignment, let it all grow. But at the end, at the end, we'll sort it out. At the end, we'll separate it. At the end, the Father will send his angels and he will separate the good from the bad. Now, notice what he says that the men drew it ashore, uh, sat it down, sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Remember, the, 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 the weeds get burned in the fire, but the wheat is taken into the master's barn. And so we see that similarity even here that, that every kind of fish is gathered and, and in the future, God is going to get rid of the bad. Now, going back to this, this idea of every kind of fish, it's, it's so incredibly important that we understand the gospel does not discriminate. The gospel is not for a particular people, it is for all people. God desires every tribe, every nation, every tongue confessing his name. And so every kind of fish. This is why, this is why in, in, in Jesus' discourse with, with Nicodemus in the middle of the night, as Nicodemus sneaks out as, as, a, as a secret disciple, we know that he's actually a leader amongst, amongst the Pharisees, and, and yet he sneaks out as a secret disciple of Jesus to hear how, how is it possible that you're doing these things and, and what's going on? And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And of course, Nicodemus is confused and he goes, how can a man enter, enter his, his mother's womb a second time? What's going on? And Jesus begins to explain, well, this is the work of the spirit and you being a teacher of the law don't understand these things. How is it possible? And then in John three sixteen, after that discourse, Jesus says, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever, not a certain type of person, not a certain type of people, not people from a certain type of nation, whosoever would believe shall not perish but have eternal life. The gospel is for the whosoever's. You and I are whosoever's. The gospel is for every nation and every tribe. And so at the end of the age, 
in the future, it's gonna be sorted, the good into the containers, the bad throwing away. Now, this, this word bad here is, is interesting because it can, mean a, it can mean a couple of things. It can mean, it can mean bad, it can mean, it can mean ugly, it can mean decaying. Decaying, meaning it's, it's dying. And the other meaning is, is, is that it's worthless. It's worthless. A decaying fish is worthless. You know, don't come home with a decaying fish, right? You go, honey, look what I caught. No, you want a fresh fish, a fish that's alive, and so that when you eat it, there's not gonna be any issues. And so the bad means the decaying. The decaying, which then would allow us to conclude that the opposite is true for the good. That they are not decaying, but they are alive. There's life flowing in them. What are the good fish? Good fish are fish that have life flowing through them. I have come so that you may have life, and not just life, but abundant life. And so, and so that's the point, that's the purpose. And so he says the bad, those that are decaying and, and are worthless, they're gonna be thrown, they're gonna be thrown away. He continues, so will it be when? At the end of the age. So again, this is what? Future. This is future, this is, this is not gonna happen now. Separation is not going to happen now. It's the end of the age. And, and notice he says the angels will come and they will separate. Now, 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 watch the change of language. Evil and righteous. Now, it was what? good and bad, and now it is evil and righteous. And so there is this change of language that it's the good and the evil. It's the, it's the good and the bad, it's the evil and the righteous, and, and you want, this is, this is interesting because remember, he's fixated on, on this happening in the future. It's not gonna happen now. Here's what that tells us. It tells us that good and evil right now coexist but there will be a day where they will be separated. There will be a day where God will separate the good from the evil. And so do not grow weary of doing good in an evil world. Right now, good and evil coexist, but it's only so that the light may shine brighter in darkness. There will be one day where good and evil are completely separated and good will be with the place where we are in the presence of God for eternity and the bad will be those that have been separated from his presence. And so he, he says, he says they're, gonna be, they're, gonna be, they're gonna be separated. It's gonna, it's not gonna go, it's not gonna go like this for, for forever. And notice he says, in that place. In that place. And so this is a literal place, is what Jesus is saying. This is not an idea. This is not a concept. This is not me just drawing some symbolic thing just to, just to scare you. No, no, this is, a, this is going to be a place. This is going to be a place, and in that place, notice, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, this is going to be a place of sorrow and suffering. Which, if you go into the book of Revelation, the depiction and the description of heaven and eternity with God is completely opposite from this. And it is, a depict, it, it is depicted as a, as a place where there will be no more weeping. There will be no more suffering. And the glory of Jesus will give light to everything. And so it's a place, and, and we know that heaven and eternity in the presence of God is the complete opposite from this. Now, let me, let me say this, let me say this. The fact that this is the future, this is the end of the age, tells us this that it is not up to us to separate the righteous from the evil today. We so badly want to do that. We so badly want to look at the world, look at the church, and go, oh yeah, oh yeah, I, I got this, Jesus, don't worry, I can be the judge. That side, evil, that side, righteous. Him, evil, her, righteous. 
and we want to do that. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 the, the time for separation is in the future. And you're not in charge of that. Thank God is right. And so, and so let God be the judge. And so then he turns to his disciples, verse 51, and he says, have you understood? Someone say understood. Have you understood these things? And so this is, this is the point of Jesus, right? Why does he go through such intentionality to articulate the nature of the kingdom to his disciples? So to make sure that they understand it, and he teaches them in story format through parables. It's what? It's so that his disciples understand. It's so that they have understanding. It's so that they have clarity. Now, Jesus, I believe, is asking us the same question. Have you understood? Have you understood? Have you understood? Have you understood? If you go back and read through the parables, you will notice that the parables, as Jesus explains the kingdom of God, are twofold. One, that they have eternal consequences. That if you do not understand the kingdom of God and you, and you do not find yourself as an authentic disciple of Jesus, the consequences are incredibly severe and they are an eternity long. And so there is this eternal focus as Jesus teaches and, and shows his disciples the nature of the kingdom of God. And yet at the same time, there is this invitation to step into the kingdom now and today and to enjoy it with great joy and to see it as a treasure and to allow that to be the thing that now allows your life to be lived out. And so you're not just an, an, an employee of the place you work at. You're not just a member of the family that you're born into. You are a member of the kingdom of God and God's rule and reign goes with you everywhere you go. And if that doesn't sound like the greatest adventure of, of all, then we have misunderstood. We have misunderstood understood and the only time Christianity gets boring is when it, Christ becomes misunderstood it's the only time Christianity gets boring you're telling me that God who now inhabits his people the Holy Spirit the presence of God presence that is, that is so strong, so real, so powerful, that, that in one time, if you wrongly approached it, it meant your death. A presence that, that was so strong that, that, that the prophets of the old had, had a battle, even on the mountains, of, of, uh, uh, and, and they said, okay, whoever, whoever's God is real, let him show. Let him show up. And so, and so fire is called down. So, so we're talking about this God and we're saying in the New Testament, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, that God inhabits you and brings his rule and his reign into your life. And you go, oh man, what are we having for lunch? I would argue that you have misunderstood. You have misunderstood. You have not allowed yourself to lean in to the adventure that awaits you. You are accompanied by the rule and reign of God. And how dare we call it boring. If we're honest, we should say something, something to the effect of, I'm not sure I understand. Not, I get it, it's boring. No, we, we should say, I, I am without understanding. And, and I still have some ways to go before I let the king of kings become the king of my life. And now I begin to adventure with him. What I love about sitting people that have walked with Jesus their whole life 
is that there is still somehow a sparkle in their eye when they talk about their Savior. If you're, if you're bored and you, you are under the age of, of 45 or even 50 men, sit at the feet of some old saints and let them tell you about the wonder and the adventure of following Jesus. And you will see that there is a sparkle and wonder in their eye still to this day. Because they have understood. They have understood. And so the question is, have you understood? The last thing Jesus says to his disciples is that in the end, there's gonna be a separation. There's, there's, this, is, this is eternity we're talking about. Those who are mine are gonna spend eternity in my kingdom, and those who are not will be cast into a place of weeping and gnashing. And, and this separation, notice he says, is not continuous. It's not gonna continue to happen every day of, of life. It's gonna happen in the end. And so, and so he says to them, do you understand this thing? And they say, yes. Yes, we do. And then he turns to them and he says, then, therefore, every scribe, which is every teacher that has been trained, that word trained right there, literally the word is discipled. Every scribe that has been discipled for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Notice this. He brings out his, out of his treasure. Where does he bring it out of? His treasure. What is the kingdom of God? A treasure. But the, po the point is, the goal is not just to see it as a treasure, but to see it as my treasure. It is now my, so this is why, this is why the parable, right, of the man who finds the treasure hidden in the field, buries it, covers it, and sells everything he has to buy that field because though it was a treasure, it was not his treasure, and he sells everything for the sake of his joy so that it may be his treasure. His treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like, Scribe, every scribe, sorry, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure, notice, what is new and what is old. So what is Jesus saying there? What is the point of Jesus there? So now remember, the, the old here represents the law and the prophets, the old here represents the old covenant. Remember, Jesus showed up and he goes, man, listen, you think, you think I came here to abolish the law and prophets? I didn't come here to abolish the law and prophets. I came here to fulfill the law and prophets so that you may see that everything in the old was pointing to the new and the new is me. And so the reason the writer of Hebrews says that the new covenant is better than the old covenant is because the new covenant centers itself around Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the old. And so in Jesus' days, the Pharisees fixated on the old are fixated on something that is unfulfilled. And so Jesus brings an invitation to his disciples to become scribes who have been discipled for the kingdom and out of their treasure, they can bring the old and bring the new. And they can share the story of Jesus with whomever, and say, Jesus is the fulfillment. Let's continue, and I'm almost done. How are we doing? Doing all right? We're gonna finish Matthew 13 tonight. When Jesus had finished these parables, so Jesus is finishing these parables, notice it says he went away from there. And coming into what? His hometown. Anyone know what his hometown is? Nazareth, right? Jesus from Nazareth. Remember that saying? Can anything good come from? Yeah. Nazareth wasn't much of a town, and, and yet that is where Jesus is from, and so he goes to his hometown, and he teaches them, and notice, their synagogue. Why does he do that? So that, this is the purpose of him teaching in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. 
so that they were astonished. Now remember the parable of the sower. There's four different grounds that the seed is sown on. Remember the rocky ground? The rocky ground is the ground with shallow soil. The rocky ground is the ground that receives the word and it springs up in joy. And yet when the sun comes out, because it doesn't have deep roots, it's scorched. And so they hear Jesus' teaching in their synagogue and what are they? Astonished. Whoa, this is incredible. This is incredible teaching. Look at what they continue to say. As we close, he says, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So it's wisdom and works. So Jesus, this tells us Jesus is not just teaching in the synagogue. He probably did some sort of healing, some sort of miracle, so that they, they look at each other and go, where did this man get this wisdom to teach in such astonishing ways? And where did he get the power to do these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the carpenter's son? So now no, watch this, watch this. Because now they begin to question. Now they begin to go, what's going on here? Who, who does this guy think he is? But, but it starts with them being what? Astonished. Rocky ground. Receives the word with joy. And yet doesn't have the ability to persevere. It's scorched when the sun comes up. What does that tell us? That tells us, let me say this, church. Don't ever judge your relationship with God based on moments of intensity. Do not judge your relationship with God based on moments of intensity. For some of you, prayer week was a moment of intensity. You were, you were here, you're seeking God. Every night, and you're, you're praying and you're fasting, those those moments are moments of intensity. It's moments where, where we are waging war against our flesh and, and we come to nightly services and we experience the glory, we experience the presence of God and we go, wow, these are incredible moments. But, but here's the mistake, here's the, here's the misunderstanding is we judge our relationship with God on those moments of intensity. Don't do that. Because it is not intensity that makes up your relationship with God, it is consistency. It is consistency that allows your relationship with God to grow. It is consistency that allows God to access parts of your heart that he cannot access simply in one moment of intensity. It is consistency that shapes your character into the image of Christ. It is consistency. It is God continuously and daily chipping away at the hardness of your hearts so that you might receive from him. It is consistency that allows you to get familiar with the voice of God so that in any day, in any moment, in any season, he can lead you and guide you and you can follow with complete obedience. It is consistency that does that. And if you look at your life and where you are in your relationship with God, I promise you it is your inconsistency that is killing you. Went through prayer week. You know, there is one non-negotiable when it comes to prayer. And that is that you have to show up. You have to show up. And that's, that's a non-negotiable. When it comes to our relationship with God, we have to show up and we have to show up consistently. Consistently. And so don't let your inconsistency kill you in your relationship with God. Don't let that happen. And, and I would say, don't let those sporadic moments of intensity, don't let those things deceive you into thinking you have something that might not actually exist. 
And so Jesus said, in the last day, they're gonna come to me. They're gonna say, we had these moments of intensity where we, where we did these miracles and we prophesied and we cast out demons and it was intense and wow, we, we built our relationship with you in, on those moments of intensity. And Jesus goes, no, 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 I never knew you because you never consistently showed up. Relationship is built on consistency. And so don't let that happen to you. One, one writer says that discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. It's long obedience in the same direction. That's discipleship. So they say, they say, where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he get these mighty works? This is the carpenter's son. His mother's Mary. We know his brothers, his sisters are out here. And look at this. They are in the midst of Jesus teaching them God's word like it's never been taught before. And they are in the midst of Jesus doing mighty works. And what are they fixated on? Is it Mary, this guy's mom? Isn't that Joseph's son? And God is moving and God is working and God could be doing something incredible and God is confronting the darkness in their hearts and they're fixated on the trivial, on the things that don't matter. There's so many times where I'm having a conversation with an individual and I can feel the Holy Spirit leading me to, to bring truth that is confrontational and what happens? They change the subject. And they begin to focus on the trivial things in life that don't matter God's doing miraculous things. And they go, oh, yeah, isn't that Mary's son? See, that's human nature. That's your nature. That's my nature. That when God confronts us with something that is supposed to lead us to transformation, we avoid it. And we go, no, no, let me just focus on something trivial. Let me just focus on a side quest here. Let me just focus on something that doesn't really matter. having a conversation with somebody even after church and uh, I said to them, man, God is, you know, clearly doing something here and man, what an incredible word, what an incredible moment of worship where God wasn't just worship but God was invited to do something in us. And I began to share with this individual that, man, I really believe God is calling you to, to this and I really believe God is challenging you in this area and you know, you know what the person said? Rather than, rather than entertaining that conversation and allowing it to go a little bit deeper, maybe allowing the work of the Spirit to be done and saying, yeah, yeah, you know what? I sense that, I feel that, I acknowledge that. Let me let that truth confront me so I'm transformed. You know what they go? Wow, man, there's a lot of new people in church, huh? Because that's the human heart. That's the human heart. Do you think Jesus had to die for humanity because humanity loves transformation? No. We don't love transformation. We don't love truth that confronts us and changes us. We hate it. We hate that. Our flesh hates it. Which is why Jesus had to say to his disciples when they were invited into this moment of weakness and, and Jesus says, listen, Jesus, pray, pray. Stay awake and pray. Be alert and pray so that you might not fall into temptation. And what do they do? They fall asleep and, and Jesus has to tell them, listen, this is the reality of humanity. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is incredibly weak. That's why, that's why Paul says in Galatians 2, 20, man, I've been crucified with Christ. It's, it's not me who lives now, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. One preacher of old said the problem with Christianity is many people have come to the cross, but not many people have gotten on the cross. But a few people have allowed 
crucifixion of Jesus to be the crucifixion of their flesh. We come to the foot of the cross but we never get on the cross. And that doesn't mean that we die for our own sins. It means that we participate in the death of Jesus so that we might participate in the resurrection of Jesus. Because without his cross, there's no resurrection. Without participating in his death, we cannot participate in his life. And so that's why Paul says, I boast in the cross. I preach Christ and Christ crucified because that is the power of God. And though it might be foolishness to the world, it is the only thing that is able to set humanity free. So they say, man, who's, who's this guy think he is? Aren't, aren't, his also, aren't, aren't his sisters here and his brothers are these guys? And where did this man get all these things? And, and here's, here's look, what, look what happens. They take offense. It starts with them being astonished and ends with them being offended. Because here's what they do. They look at Jesus and they go, this guy's just one of us. He's a Nazarene just like us. He's from here just like us. And so they're offended because Jesus is bringing the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God. And so wherever the rule and the reign of God comes, it ushers humanity into a greater standard. And they go, oh, you think, you think you're better than us? And so they take, they take offense at Jesus, thinking, man, you're just, you're just one of us. And so Jesus says, Jesus says a prophet is without honor except in his hometown and his household. And so he's saying, listen, I can go anywhere and people are gonna receive me with honor and I come to my own hometown and there's no honor. And Jesus says, this is the nature of being called. This is the nature of being a prophet. This is the nature of being in, in spiritual leadership that, that when you go to places and they're not familiar with you, you're gonna receive honor. But the moment you come into places and they're familiar with you, honor is stripped away because, oh, I, I know you. I saw you running around. And even beyond Jesus, this happens in the church where we, where we refuse to give honor to church leadership because, oh yeah, you're just one of us. You're just one of us. And so we cannot allow that to happen. The Bible says even today, those who preach the word of God are, they, they are deserving of double honor. Double honor. That's the word of God. And I, and I know that those, those scriptures and those things can, can be manipulated when, when they're used to, to to actually celebrate, or not to celebrate, rather rather to, to make way for power and manipulation in the lives of people. I know those things can be misused, but that does not excuse us from being people who operate in the standard of the kingdom of God, which is the standard of honor. I could take you, I could take you to the writings of Peter, who is writing in the times of, of, of the emperor Nero, who is, who is barbecuing Christians for entertainment. You ever had a bonfire? You throw some more wood, oh, the fire's getting weak, let's throw some more wood. You know what they would do? Oh, the fire's getting weak, let's throw a Christian in there. And Peter writes in that day and age and says, honor the king in the empire. What? Yeah. Honor the emperor. So at some point, we have to understand that we are no longer people of this world. We are people of the kingdom of God, and we live by a different standard. There is a spirit guiding us and leading us, and we are subject to him. He is not subject to us. And so it says, and I'm gonna close right here, verse 58, this is one of the most horrifying verses in all of the Bible. And it says, this is his hometown, and it says, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I want you to see something, the word, the word many. It, it doesn't say he did not do any mighty works. He did not do many, which means he did a few but he did not do many 
because of their unbelief. In other words, he was able to do many. He is capable to do many. But he only did a few because of their unbelief. Here's the scary part. What was available to everyone was only experienced by a few. And that is the danger of thinking you're a disciple, but in reality, you're part of the crowd. You think you heard, you think you saw, but you didn't. You have not understood. He did many, he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. Now, we can go all the way back to the separation of the bad fish and the good fish. What are, what are the good fish and what are the bad fish? The bad fish are those with unbelief. And that's why in the next sentence or in the, in the next verse, he, he changes the language from bad and good and he changes it to evil and righteous. What makes a person righteous? Their faith, their belief. So what is a bad fish? A person with unbelief. A person to whom the kingdom of God is available. Because of their unbelief, they do not experience it. Because of their unbelief, it is our faith that makes us righteous. There's a scripture in Psalm 81. I want to read to you. I think it just ties in with the parables that Jesus is teaching in Matthew 13. It says this, but my people, my people, my people, not foreigners, my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. My people we cast a net, catch every kind of fish. Right, you heard it on Sunday. There, there are branches abiding in Jesus. Without fruit, they're dead. My people, because they didn't listen to my voice, because they wouldn't submit to me, because they operated in unbelief, watch what God does. He gives them over to his, their own stubborn hearts. That's what I was saying. Getting your way is part of the curse of sin. God giving you to your own counsel, to your own wisdom, to the stubbornness of your own heart is not a blessing, my friends. It is a curse that comes because of sin. So my prayer here is that we would not just be the fish that get caught in the net, but we would be the fish that are called good and righteous. That we would not be amongst the crowds, but we would be authentic disciples and followers of Jesus perpetually wearing his dust. So let me pray to that end. Father, we thank you so much. God, that your heart is toward us. And if it were not so, Lord, you would not speak with such clarity in your word as to warn us of our own deceptiveness and our own blindness. But Lord, tonight we thank you that we are not amongst the crowd. And if we are, God, that you would draw us in and that we would go from unbelief to believing. But I thank you, God, that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear that you have called us blessed because we have understood. And so, Father, we plead 
Do not give us up to our own stubbornness. But let your rule and your reign operate in our lives. So bring your kingdom, God. Bring your will. And allow us, Lord, to live the adventure that you have called us to live. And to call others that have yet to come in. We thank you for that assignment to now go and cast the net so that others may find you as the treasure and delight that you are. In Jesus' name I pray.